0: Since the beginning, members of the NC Advocates for Justice have been raising their voices, speaking out on behalf of those who go unheard, joining their voices to oppose injustice and support fair treatment for everyone under the law. With this podcast, Voices of NCAJ, we'll listen to those members, lawyers and legal professionals who founded the organization, whose dedication and energy kept it going and guided it through growth, change and challenges. Each conversation will inspire us to meet the future with a unified voice that channels the strengths and accomplishments of our organization. Welcome to Voices of NCAJ.
1: This episode features one of our NCAJ Legends interviews recorded during Convention 2022. As part of our 60th anniversary celebration, each Legends episode allows a longtime member to tell their story and the story of NCAJ. Before we kick that off today, I'd like to remind you that our podcast is edited and engineered by our friends at Law Pods, a professional audio production company focused on helping lawyers make great sounding podcasts. They sweat all the details so you concentrate on the content. If you're thinking about podcasting, check them out at lawpods.com. They've made podcasting a breeze for us.
2: Anna Calaritas, I am happy to be participating in the storytelling sessions with NCAJ Legends. NCAJ has created the series to honor our longtime members who contributed to the organization and have helped sustain for more than 60 years. Today I'm honored to be here with Don Beskin. Welcome. Thank you. So, Don, can you tell me a little bit about what made you decide to be a trial lawyer?
1: So I didn't know what I wanted to do when I got out of college. And so on three successive Saturdays, I took the law boards, the business boards, and the graduate record exam, and my score told me what I should be doing with my life, which was going to law school. Unfortunately, there'd never been a lawyer, or fortunately, there'd never been a lawyer in my family, and I really didn't have a clue what what it was like. And after about a semester, I decided that law school wasn't for me, and I took a year off and worked in politics. And the people in the blue campaign I was in persuaded me that all good politicians have a law degree, or they used to anyway. And so I went back to law school, and I didn't like it much until my third year. And I was in the first generation of students that had a legal clinical experience. It was at two schools. One was my law school, and one was Harvard. And so I got to try cases all through my third year in law school, and I loved it. And I actually thought I could maybe be okay at this, which I hadn't decided that there was anything else about the law that I could be okay at. And so that's what got me started was the experience in law school of actually trying cases. Those were small criminal defense cases.
2: Speaking of of trying cases, especially from your early days as a lawyer, are there any client stories that have stuck with you over the years or that have meant a lot to you?
1: I do think the one of the early cases, I started in Colorado and then then moved here. And one of the early cases I had here was a helicopter crash that took place in Coinjark on the Outer Banks. And uh, I represented the estate of a woman who left a husband and a very small child. And I remember that case so vividly because I don't think I ever to this day, i have had a case that affected me as much. This woman put a note in her husband's lunchbox every day about how much she loved him. And she kept a diary from the day she found out she was pregnant about her daughter. And one of the things she wrote in that diary, this literally always brings me to tears, is that the only thing she didn't like about her job as an EMT on a helicopter was that the helicopter might crash and she wouldn't get to see her daughter grow up. And um, last week, I had an email from her father saying that she had just gotten her PhD. So it's a wonderful story. It covers sort of my whole career, but it also just an early lesson about how lucky people can be to have people like that in their lives and what an immense loss it is when those people are gone.
2: I'd say that's one of my favorite things about what we do as lawyers is getting to know those clients and impacting their lives and having such a great-
1: And seeing positive results from the money that came out of that case that went to take care of that child.
2: Are there any times uh, where the outcome wasn't great? Have
1: any of those times stuck with you? Yeah, I um, I once uh, represented the family of a child that was killed in a street in Oxford, North Carolina, when he kind of ran out into the street a little bit and was hit by a Domino's pizza driver. And I knew that I was going to lose that case when the lawyer on the other side, George Miller, who was a state representative and a well-known defense lawyer in our area, did some voir dire that brought out that virtually every juror had unintentionally hit a deer in the street. And just everybody thought that was something you could never avoid. It was a tragic situation. I suspect that the grandparents who were taking care of the child might have been a little bit negligent letting a child that small near the street. But I thought, you know, that it was a case worth taking. On the other hand, it was I knew early on that we were going to have a hard time in that case, and we did.
2: I think we've all got cases like that that just stay with us.
1: Yeah.
2: Uh, When you uh, started practicing in North Carolina, you practiced with a lot of the founders of of NCAJ. Can you tell us what that was like, getting to practice with these legends of law?
1: Yeah, so I always thought that the smartest thing I could do in my career was practice with people who were smarter or more talented than I was and hope that some of it would rub off. And um my first firm was with David Rudolph. I was the clinical director, the director of clinical studies at Duke, and he was the same at UNC. And for differing reasons, we both decided it was time to move on. And we talked about it a little bit, and we just started a law firm. And um he is an extraordinary bright and talented guy and a great trial lawyer. And then along the way, we added Tom Maher, who ended up being the head of indigent legal services in North Carolina, another spectacular trial lawyer, and others like Andy Curcio, who now teaches at Georgia State, and others. There came a point where I was doing, David was doing all the criminal work, and I was doing the civil cases, and I needed a sort of a bigger firm. And so I joined with a friend, Don Strickland, as of counsel to the firm that included Charlie Blanchard and Howard Twiggs. Karen Rabineau, Jay Trehe, a lot of really smart and talented people again. And I stayed with them for 17 years, 13 years with David and 17 years with with the other firm. And in that process, got to spend a lot of time with both Charlie and Howard, who I love dearly and who were, you know, some of the patron saints of this organization.
2: You were mentioning uh, beforehand, uh, you were telling us a story about tennis um, in Charlie Blanchard. Would you mind telling us that story again?
1: So tennis has fallen out of favor, generally at meetings and things. Several organizations I'm with don't have tennis tournaments anymore, but this organization always had a tennis tournament. And one of the mainstays of the tennis tournament was Charlie Blanchard. And uh, the young Charlie Blanchard was a really talented tennis player, uh, both for his ability and for his tennis acumen. As he got older, he was less physically talented, so he used the acumen more. It became quite a weapon. You might even say that he could be vicious at times in uh, placing the ball where you could not get to it or making sure that the the ball was so close to your body that you couldn't return it. So he was a lot of fun on the tennis court. He was always a complete gentleman about everything, including the tennis. He would always apologize after winning the shot, but he was just one of the sweetest human beings I ever knew.
2: I never had the pleasure to meet him. I always regretted that. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned that this organization used to have a tennis tournament. You know, you've been a member for a long time. What changes have you seen in a DHA?
1: Well, I think the biggest and most positive change has been the change of diversity. I mean, it, it looked awful white and awful male when I got here. And I was coming from places that probably were a little more diverse. And I grew up in the Northeast. And, and there were some African-American lawyers. There was Jim Ferguson. There was Charles Beckton. There were a few others, but not many, really not many. And uh, as for women, there were some women in the organization, but very few of them tried cases. There were in domestic relations or some other things, uh, family law. So I think that's been the biggest change. Another change has been the incredible growth of what we do in education. I mean, it was was a very small operation when I was vice president for education. You know, we, eight or 10 programs a year would have been a lot. And, you know, this is pre-video. Every program was live. And it was an important part of bringing up the quality of the plaintiff's bar in the state. I think the defense lawyers had more, more organization behind them at times. We had the better organization. We had the better education programs. And I think the defense lawyers knew that.
2: It seems like education has played a big role in your career. You're a professor at Duke. Can you tell us a little bit about the decision to, be, to also become a professor as well as mm-hmm. practicing law?
1: So I went into practice with a small plaintiff's boutique and criminal defense boutique in Denver, Colorado, after law school. And one of the cases I got involved in was a televangelist and who was charged with securities fraud. And who ultimately basically prevailed because he didn't take a nickel. He may have been terrible with the money, but he didn't take, <laughs> take a nickel. And he really believed that he could accomplish what he was trying to accomplish. But afterwards there was a bankruptcy and the firm put me on the bankruptcy. And both the judge and I knew that I shouldn't be involved in the <laughs> bankruptcy because I never took bankruptcy. And a friend at Duke knew about a fellowship that Duke had for clinical legal educators. And there had been a cancellation of someone coming. He called me at the last minute and said, do you want to come? I wanted off that case badly. If I'd been to North Carolina, I, I had only passed through it. I didn't know anything about it. Didn't know anybody here other than this former classmate from law school. And I came for two years to be a graduate fellow. And so that was what got me here. And that's what got me into legal education. And then I stayed on the Duke faculty for about three or four years until David and I started a firm, taught adjunctively for the last, for about 30 years while I was 13 with one and 17 with the other firm. And then basically got old enough that I realized I couldn't try cases forever and that being a law professor full-time might be a really nice way to end my career. So that's what I'm doing now. I have two cases with my dear friend, Don Strickland are significant cases that we're working on Um, that kind of slowed down during COVID. But most of my time is teaching and mediating these days.
2: Seeing the new generation of coming lawyers, are they interested in practicing plaintiff law?
1: Yes. I mean, and some of it is that they want to try cases and they've realized that if they don't want to do criminal defense work, that doing tort related work is probably the next best place to try jury cases. Some of it is also economic, that for the Duke students, they're, you know, in demand by the big firms who are on the defense side of some of the big tort cases in America, some of the multi-district stuff and all of that. But they're also now increasingly in demand on the plaintiff side. There is some interest, and, and, you know, there, I think there's a financial element in that. But others of them are interested in, in it just because of the same reasons that I think that my generation was interested in. It was a way to help people and hopefully, you know, support a family.
2: That's my favorite thing about what we do is is getting yeah. to, to help people. Yeah. You mentioned that you're mediating also. And I have to say, you're one of the best mediators I've ever worked with. Thank um, you. I think the first mediation I ever did with you was 12 hours long.
1: <laughs> you see, now, the thing about mediation is sort of like trying cases. You learn a lot about it. You do the mediation. And then you pull the plug, and usually you just forget. I, I have no memory of the me. I, I remember you, of course, but I have no memory of the mediation itself.
2: Well, I was going to ask you, what, what made you decide to go into mediating?
1: There was no mediation in North Carolina for a long time ago. About 25 years ago, the middle, maybe even longer, the middle district of North Carolina federal court decided that it wanted to be one of the five federal districts that did a pilot program. Because the Chief Justice of the United States thought this would be a good idea. And they were looking for people to mediate. And because of my academic ties, they asked if I would go through a training program and learn to mediate. And so I did. And I just have always done a mediation or two a month because I see a lot of lawyers. I keep up on what's going on in terms of case valuation. It's a useful thing to know. And I kind of like the process of helping people see what their options are to a trial. Uh, I'm a firm believer in trial by jury, but I also believe that it's not necessary in every case and that that sometimes an outside person can help people reach a settlement that they ought to reach and that uh, the risks of the trial and the cost of the trial can be avoided.
2: Have you noticed a difference in the practice of law since mediation has become the norm in North Carolina?
1: A lot less trials, yeah. And that's one of the things I've wondered about. Has mediation been good for the system? I think it is good for the clients because they get their recoveries sooner and with more certainty, and they have more control over their own outcomes. But is it good for the system? It gets a lot easier to think about Uh, limiting jury trials or narrowing jury trials when there aren't many of them. Also, judges who don't try a lot of cases aren't so good at trying cases. And the same could probably be said for lawyers as well. So I worry about that. I mean, obviously, the future of the jury trial is on my mind. It was very hard to win a jury trial when I started. It got easier to win a jury trial. And now it's just hard to get a jury trial.
2: Yeah. Where do you, in your opinion, where do you see the future of this type of practice going?
1: I worry about it. There are some things that people worried about that I'm not as worried about. For example, when advertising started, a lot of people were petrified that it would bring down the quality. I don't think that that's, that's true. I mean, you know, one of my former students, Jim Farron, is probably one of the biggest advertisers in North Carolina. And I have watched his firm grow and even consulted with him at times. And they've really worked on becoming a, you know, not just a place where cases get processed, but a place where there are people, good people who can try cases when cases need to be tried, but where they're efficient at moving the cases. And, you know, most plaintiff's lawyers understand That basically there is nothing good for the client or for the lawyer if the case doesn't end. So that finishing cases is something that you really have to focus on.
2: Going back to your your mediating, what do you think makes a good mediator?
1: Basically, patience and the ability to listen. Uh, Sometimes people have to wear themselves out. It's like arguments you have with people sometimes. You just have to let them vent. And then sometimes it's easier to work things out with them after they've said their piece. But while they're saying their piece, you have to keep the other side from going off the rails. So some of it is patience. You know, I have an adage about this, that mediation is about looking through the front windshield instead of the rearview mirror. That basically you need to get the people to look forward and say, we have something here, we need to get resolved so we can put it behind us and then move forward, but you have to show them how getting it resolved will help them see a better future for themselves.
0: So
2: it's a great way to look at it. And the patience portion is something that we lawyers sometimes have some trouble with.
1: You know, that's probably okay. Advocates have to be a little bit impatient at times. Otherwise, they're not fighting hard enough for their clients.
2: Very good point. Turning into a slightly different direction, you have
1: daughters.
2: Um, one daughter. You have one a daughter da- who is also practicing law. How yeah. does it feel to have
1: her? This was a thing. My wife, when my daughter was growing up, my wife is an MBA, not a lawyer, has always said she thought lawyers were a little narrow. And she said, you know, I don't want our daughter to be a lawyer for two reasons. One is, I don't know what it will be like in our household with two lawyers on one side of an argument and me. So there's that. And of course, that's what she, of course, wanted to be. She has good verbal skills and she's passionate about things. And so she got engaged in college in death penalty issues. And um, after college, we talked about law school. And I said, basically, take a couple of years and make sure it's what you want to do. So she did Teach for America then came back to Duke Law School. I was not back full-time, so it was not a problem for her. And then she went back to New Orleans where she'd done Teach for America and was a public defender, and then came back here to be a capital defender. And now she uh, practices with Bill Thomas and Jay Ferguson in Durham doing criminal defense. A lot of her work is, in fact, well, there are fewer capital cases and more murder cases now. And then she also represents students in disputes with their universities.
2: Any against Duke? Or? <laughs>
1: yeah, I, she does. she's had some major cases against Duke, some of which have been public. She represented a a soccer player that they tried to toss out. He ended up uh, getting back in and, and being happy about the circumstances under which he got back.
2: Well, it's interesting. I, I also work with my father, who's a trial lawyer. I know right you now. do. He gave me the exact same advice about taking time between college and law school.
1: Yeah. And my experience was my best law students had been out for a couple of years, had a little more life experience, saw the world from more sides. Yeah. But I think to me, that's the greatest thing. You and my daughter aren't the only two members, aren't the only two daughters of members of the Academy. In fact, I know more daughters of members of the Academy who are being trial lawyers than I do sons. And I think that's a great thing. Yeah,
2: that, that's very true. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. That there, there are quite a few of us daughters that are yep. that are following in our father's footsteps. Exactly. I, I have. I saw a pillow once that said, "Become the lawyer that your parents wanted you to marry." Yeah. <laughs> I Always like that. <laughs> so, what advice do you have for those of us that are in you know the early parts of our career?
1: I think one of the things that has stood me in the best stead is I've gotten along. With pretty much everybody I've ever dealt with. There are a lot of people that have done things. I mean, there was a US attorney who later ended up going to jail, prison, who basically came after Dave Rudolph and me. And it was tactical on his part. I really didn't like him, I didn't like the person that worked with him because of what they did. I didn't make up with the U.S. attorney, but the other person I did, and we have worked it out. And I've tried to get along with everybody. I've tried to be attentive to the staff in the courthouses and all of that. Some of these things I learned from Wade Smith, who couldn't walk in a courthouse where everybody didn't know his name and wasn't happy to see him. And I've just found that getting along with as many people as possible, even people who have done you dirty at times, Finding a way to make that work helps me because people are, are willing to work with me and try and solve problems that we have in our cases. It's rare that I have to have a motion to compel with a lawyer. I, I can usually find a way to work it out. The advent of lawyers coming into state from out of state has made that harder. They practice by different rules and in different ways. I think you can fight very hard and still get along.
2: That's such great advice, especially for those of us in our early parts of the career that you think you've got to be so adversarial all the time.
1: Yeah, I just think that's not necessary. I think men particularly have this habit of making it a macho sport. But, you know, I see women doing it too, and I'm not sure that it's good. I'm not sure that that's the way to go.
2: What was it like, you, know, you mentioned that you're from the Northeast and spent time in Colorado. What was it like coming into North Carolina?
1: Yeah, when I came in the first couple of jury trials I did, I said to jurors, you know, things like, if I'm speaking too fast, let me know. Or if you don't understand something. And about my third trial, a juror took me aside after the trial and said, you know, I'm from Staten Island. I understood you fine. And I don't think any of the other jurors had a problem. I don't think you need to say that. I think what happened is not that I changed as much as the the population of North Carolina has changed. It's, it's grown an awful lot, and it didn't just grow through the birth rate. People came here, and a lot of them came from the Northeast and the Midwest. And so it feels less provincial here at times. By provincial, I mean as its own province and not as in lack of sophistication or something like that. This was always there was always a pretty good quality of practice here.
2: You know, we're here at NCAJ's 60th anniversary conference. Can you tell us a little bit about what NCAJ and and the academy um, has meant throughout your career? Yeah, I think
1: it has been an enormous source of support to me at times when I needed support. I had a group of lawyers that I met with regularly, all of whom who did medical malpractice work. And, you know, we would sit around and talk about our cases. All those people I met through the Academy and all of those people contributed to my success. You know, from the early days of listservs or things, this has been an organization about helping people and not just our clients, but helping each other. And yes, people compete for cases. And yes, you know, there's all of that. But I've never picked up the phone and called a lawyer anywhere to ask about the jury pool or ask about a judge that they weren't willing to help me. And as far as I can remember, anytime a lawyer's called me, I've been willing to help them. And I think that's the heart of what this organization has been about. We've had different names. We've had different leaders. But the core of the organization basically has been support for our clients and mutual support for each other.
2: I have to agree. That's my favorite thing about what we do is helping our clients. My favorite thing about this organization is, is that we're so willing to help each other. Yeah. Um, it's just such a unique yes. experience. Exactly. Um, so i just got one more question for you um, and I have to ask it. I think you were at Duke around the same time as my father, Dave Pishko. Do you have any stories about
1: him? I have no story about your father because I did not know your father, at least as I can remember, at Duke. I've known him a long time. My take on your father is just that he, and you're going to hate this, that he's just one of the nicest people around, and that he has taken, a lot of people take the easy cases to win. Some people take the hard cases. I, over his career, I've watched, he takes the hard cases, and I admire him a lot for that.
2: Well, you have not given me anything to oh, to blackmail him with or hold over his head. I'm so sorry. But... Thank you so much for, for taking It's been time great talking today. with you. Yes, it's been a wonderful, wonderful time. Thank you so much for sharing your stories. My pleasure. Practicing in North Carolina and with NCAJ.
1: Thanks so much.
2: Thank you.
0: <laughs> Thank you for joining us on this episode of Voices of NCAJ. For more information on the North Carolina Advocates for Justice and how to join or support NCAJ, please visit our website at www.ncaj.com.